You have to recognize that this is a political problem on a global scale. So even if you didn't want to worry about it, as a political actor, uh, as the president of the United States has to be and our climate envoy has to be and the UN has to be, uh, you have to pay serious attention to it. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the program. You know, I've had the pleasure of including in these podcast conversations over the past four years now a significant number of truly outstanding economists who have carried out important work in the realm of environmental energy and resource economics and have been real leaders in the profession. Today, we top that because I'm joined today by someone who has made important contributions, not just in the realm of environmental and resource economics, but has truly been a global leader in the discipline of economics broadly across numerous subfields and has ventured and published well beyond economics in seemingly disparate realms, ranging from contract bridge to Italian Renaissance painting. All in all, he is the author or editor of 14 books and well more than 300 scholarly articles. I am, of course, referring to my Harvard colleague and friend, Richard Zeckhauser, the Frank Ramsey Professor of Political Economy at the Harvard Kennedy School and fellow of the American Economic Association, the Econometric Society, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the Association of Public Policy and Management, and the Society for Benefit Cost Analysis. Beyond that, I want to acknowledge that he is celebrated at Harvard and beyond as a marvelous classroom teacher and a valued mentor to generations of students and faculty colleagues alike. Welcome, Richard. Thank you, Rob. Uh, that was a very generous introduction. And as uh, one of my colleagues would say, uh, my uh, father would be delighted and my mother would have believed it. <laughs> So before we talk about your research and your current thinking, eventually about environmental and climate change, economics and policy, I want to go back to what you were just commenting on. Naturally, I want to go back to how you came to be where you are. So where did you grow up? So I grew up in uh, a suburb of New York, uh, Great Neck, Long Island. I spent my first eight years in uh, Philadelphia. Um, and then at the age of 17, I came to Harvard and I haven't left. So at Harvard, you studied for a BA in economics. You're too modest to mention that you received it summa cum laude. Did you tend to work with particular faculty? Sometimes undergraduates don't, but in your case, I suspect that you did. Well, I um, encountered three uh, remarkable faculty members when I was an undergraduate. Uh, the one I worked with the most was Thomas Schelling, mm -hmm. who directed my uh, undergraduate thesis. But I also studied with Fred Mosteller, a uh, mm -hmm. truly outstanding uh, statistician, and with Howard Rafa, who is uh, primarily a decision theorist. God, three of the true stars. Now, in, in your undergraduate and your honors thesis, what did you write about? I wrote um, about game theory, <laughs> but I also used behavioral decision because I thought at that time that most of game theory was oriented to people who are perfectly rational. But in many situations, it's 
again, particularly interactive situations, it's not clear what rational behavior uh, would be. And in many situations, people deviate from rational behavior. So I actually ran some experiments um, in my thesis back in 1961. Now, am I correct that after you graduated in 62, did you go to the government? You went to a job before you started the PhD program. Is that right? I worked um, in a uh, division of the Pentagon that was called uh, Systems Analysis, but was colloquially known as the Whiz Kids. And we started off, there were just 11 of us. I was the most junior. Um, and our job was to uh, try to rationalize defense spending uh, for the U.S. Defense Department budget. And ultimately, this approach to government, which mm -hmm. was sort of this policy analysis, uh, spread to many other government divisions and actually plays a significant role at the Kennedy School and other schools of public policy today, as well as in the government writ large. Now, and that was for Robert McNamara? Is that right? Robert McNamara was the Secretary of Defense. Right. From there, you come back to Harvard to study for the PhD in economics. Uh, what was your dissertation topic and who was on your committee? My uh, graduate dissertation topic was, once again, uh, this was early in the era of people writing uh, multiple essays. It was sort of essays mm -hmm. and interactive decision. And my committee was... Uh, Tom Schelling and Howard Rafa and Vasily Leontiev. And I'll just tell you one modestly interesting story. Leontiev and uh, Schelling, as you know, were both uh, ended up being Nobel Prize winners. Mm -hmm. um, but early in the discussion of my exam, uh, they had a fierce debate about the value of game theory. And <laughs> I felt like saying, geez, this is my exam. I'm thinking more. Right. But then being a shrewd game theorist, I realized that whatever I would say, at least one member of my committee would be mad at me. So I just sat there and watched it. It was very illuminating. Precisely. So um, you received your PhD in 1968. Your first position out of graduate school was, in fact, to stay in that department as a faculty member? That's uh, correct. I wasn't very attuned to things like the job market. I, I was a member of the Society of Fellows, and we had uh, three years, and uh, we get one semester abroad, which we were sitting in uh, London at the London School of Economics. Mm -hmm. And I got an email from my department chair, uh, Dick Caves, mm -hmm. saying, would you like to be an assistant professor of economics? And I turned to my uh, bride then of, you know, eight weeks, but now of uh, 57 years, and said, what do you think about being an assistant professor of economics? And she said, sounds okay to me. So that's what we did, and, you know, I've just stuck around since. So it's a good thing for us that Sally said that. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, she's a very nice person, and um, <laughs> it worked out well for her as well. So you stayed on in the economics department for a while, and then you became, I think it's fair, fair to say, this is the right word, one of the founders of the, what is the, the modern Kennedy School of Government. That's in 1972, perhaps? I think it was in 1971. Uh, yeah, but basically, uh, professors Mosteller, Rafa, and Schelling were all involved in this new school that they're mm -hmm. creating. And they said, why don't you come and teach in this new school? It's going to be very exciting. And that actually worked out very well for me because at the Kennedy School, you have much more latitude as to what you do than you would have in the economics department. Right. There was one slight hiccup, 
which was uh, they asked me to teach. And after I agreed, um, I thought it was appropriate to ask the people in charge, well, I, what will I teach? I presume I'll teach economics. And they said, no, no, we have someone who's teaching economics. You will teach analytic methods. Mm -hmm. And I said, what's that? And they said, oh, it's sort of, you know, operations research and decision theory and, you know, uh, subjects like that. I said, well, that's great, but I've um, never studied that. And they said, well, um, you'll learn. And I taught for the first few years with Howard Dreyfus, and I learned mm -hmm. an incredible amount. And that was very fortunate because that became s sort of my field from that point forward and was just pure serendipity. Now, so you've been at the Kennedy School at Harvard for over 50 years. Surely during that time, you've seen some very significant changes at the Kennedy School, Harvard University more broadly, or more broadly than that in the scholarly world of economics. Uh, I, I'm sure this could easily be, you know, a day-long presentation, but what are one or two of the biggest changes that really stand out to you over this remarkable period of time? Well, as far as economics, I would say there have been a few major changes. First place, it's a much more important field than it was mm -hmm. uh, when I uh, began studying it. Indeed, half of social sciences uses economic methods and half of social sciences uh, is somewhat hostile to economic <laughs> methods. Um, but at least they spell economics correctly. Um, so I'm pleased about that. Economics has become a much more empirical field. Mm -hmm. uh, we now use vast data sets. That's in part because uh, computers are just so incredibly fast. When I first started, um, I mean, even to uh, invert a five by five matrix, you'd have to uh, work for hours doing it um, almost by hand with a calculator. And now that happens in you know, a zillionth of uh, a second. Um, and that's very important for doing this type of empirical analysis. Uh, I'd say a second major change within economics is tremendous attention to uncertainty, which I think is very critical if we're going to understand mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. environmental uh, problems. And I think a third major uh, development, uh, which was originally initiated by the, uh, psychologist Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky, was the role of behavioral decision uh, once again, uh, it plays a major role in understanding environmental economics. You know, you mentioned inverting a matrix. What popped into my mind from deep, deep recesses is the phrase, the simplex method, which I think is how I learned to invert a matrix. Does that make sense? Uh, well, that's what I learned to invert a matrix. Yeah, okay. Uh, but neither you nor I would... Um, be able to do that today. That's absolutely and, correct. And, um, <laughs> and we wouldn't need to. And we wouldn't need to. So it's one of those skills that you have and then it vanishes. Yes. And I, by the way, I don't think there's any skill that's even related to the simplex method that um, matters. Yeah. Interesting. Now, before we turn to the policy world, which I do want to get to, I want to ask you a bit about your research and writing. Um, I recognize that this is unfair in the sense of asking you to identify your favorite grandchild, because I know you have wonderful grandchildren, but what is the one research publication that you're most proud of? Uh, you only have 334 to choose from. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's an ex uh, extraordinary hard uh, question. 
I would say just so that all my economics papers don't get jealous. Yeah. Um, I would say uh, I would therefore pick out something that's as far away from economics okay. as it could be. And I would sort of say my book on uh, Italian patronage in uh, Italian Renaissance art and a book that were going to be published, you know, later uh, this month in February, 2024 called risk in Renaissance art. And both of these illustrate my general approach to research, which is find an interesting problem and then find someone who's more knowledgeable about it than mm -hmm. I am mm -hmm. and work with them. And that's been my approach to life, uh, you know, ever since I think I graduated. So I have 300 plus papers and I would say that 250 of them are in conjunction with somebody else. Uh, many of them are written in conjunction with graduate students mm -hmm. who are actually I'm working on um, an environmental economics problem now with someone who's a sophomore um, at Harvard mm. um, and one of my two favorite granddaughters of whom there are only two. There are only two. So let's turn now to your research and writing and thinking about the environment, because this is an area that you've actually been thinking and writing about at least since your 1971 article with Emmett Keeler and Mike Spence in the Journal of Economic Theory, The Optimal Control of Pollution. And as recently as the paper you just mentioned with the Harvard College sophomore, as well as I'm aware of work you've done in the past few years about climate change policy with our colleague, Joe Aldi. What I'm interested to ask you is, when you look at the work that's being done in this area of the economics of climate change, what merits more attention than it's getting or what merits less attention than it's getting for that matter? Something that's troubled me uh, strongly um, in worrying about climate change has been the behavior of vast numbers of the environmental community who, who are stuck in what I consider to be two different equilibrium. One of the equilibrium is what I call the pumped equilibrium. And that's the idea that people started um, at least uh, three decades ago saying uh, climate change is a terrible problem, but we can control it by cutting back on our greenhouse gases. And this is the last decade that we can do that. And if we don't do it this decade, we're dead. And then the next decade, they said very much the same thing. And this decade, they're saying very much the same thing. And they keep telling us that we're going to be able to get to either two degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels or even more recently, 1.5 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels. I think that that's unrealistic. If you leave aside times like a recession or maybe uh, in some cases the pandemic, the world has been pumping out more greenhouse gases on a regular basis than it did, you know, uh, three or five years previously. Uh, the United States has done a so-so job of cutting our emissions by about 10% over a number of years. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, China has increased its emissions by 13%. And you can expect that countries like India will be growing uh, much faster in its emissions. So I think that we should take a sober look at these problems and say, what else can we do? And the two other things that we can do is, one, we can worry about amelioration. Otherwise, we have all these 
uh, emissions, is there something that we can do to reduce their consequences or to otherwise take CO2 out of the air? Mm -hmm. And the other thing that we can do is we can do some things that are that you might think of as adaptation mm -hmm. that can make, even with the same climate, can make uh, problems uh, less serious. So I was reading a paper last week, I had never heard of this, where um, some scientists have proposed building a berm around a, you know, 100 foot high berm around a fjord in um, Greenland, where warm water from the Atlantic flows in and melts the right. uh, Greenland ice. Well, mm -hmm. you know, this is very speculative. Will this work? I sure hope so. It's within our you know realm of technological capability. But I think we should be looking for many solutions like this or that could enable us to deal with this, what I consider to be a catastrophic track that we're on. What is the good news is that, although I agree with you that certainly economists and other uh, academics working on climate change have given a lot more attention to mitigation than to adaptation or to carbon removal. I'll say that in the international negotiations, when I first got involved, started going to these annual festivities, it was only economists who would even mention adaptation. And we were roundly condemned because that's throwing in the towel. That's just an excuse for not reducing fossil fuels. But that's changed. And nowadays, um, under the Paris Agreement and lots of other ways, um, the world's come around to what was previously just the economist view, that adaptation is extremely important and in some cases um, relatively low cost, which is what you're suggesting. Rob, I agree with you about adaptation. It's uh, doing much better than amelioration, mm -hmm. uh, where amelioration, you know, one of the most prominent uh, approaches would be uh, tossing sulfur dioxide into uh, the atmosphere. Um, another approach, um, which I've just been uh, learning about, there are a number of people at Woods Hole who are trying a variety of things that would involve the oceans, like increasing the alkalinity of the mm -hmm. oceans mm -hmm. as a means to deal with amelioration. Uh, the work that I'm doing with this sophomore on trees and, and with my favorite, one of my two favorite granddaughters is basically <laughs> saying um, our approach to cutting down forests um, is a disaster. We tend to cut down trees when they're uh, mature, but not when they're in, uh, in old age. And trees actually continue to increase the CO2 they take throughout their lifetimes. Right. So, right. you know, I think that we should change our logging practice. Of course, the greatest disaster in this area is uh, cutting down the rainforest in Brazil so that we can make more McDonald's hamburgers. And those, you know, those uh, jungles uh, absorb tremendous amounts of uh, CO2. So let me alert our listeners that in terms of what Richard was just commenting on, namely what goes by the phrase of solar radiation management as well as carbon removal technologies, one of the very first of these uh, podcasts that you'll find on Spotify or any of the other platforms is with my former colleague, David Keith, who's one of the international leaders in this area. And we have, and you can hear a, a marvelous discussion of those there. You know, something that's happened, Richard, and I'm not sure if, if you if you observe this, is that in both the policy world and in the scholarly world, there's increasing interest 
uh, about the distributional aspects of climate change policies, not judging climate change policies just in terms of efficiency or cost effectiveness, but essentially who gets the benefits and who pays the costs. In the U.S. political world, this is often characterized as environmental justice uh, on the benefit or damages side and just transition on the cost side, like Appalachian coal miners losing their jobs. I'd like to know what's your reaction to this increased attention to just what economists would refer to as distributional implications. Well, I think, you know, whatever your particular values are, Mm -hmm. uh, you have to recognize that this is a political problem on a global scale. So even if you didn't want to worry about it as a political actor, uh, as the president of the United States has to be and our climate envoy has to be and the UN has to be, uh, you have to pay serious attention to it. But I think dealing with climate change um, and uh, reducing its impact will automatically have very beneficial distributional consequences. I mean, the places that are likely to, that are currently suffering the most uh, from climate change are the hottest places in the world, mm-hmm. um, which are also having their weather patterns, are both suffering under temperature and having their weather patterns shifted. So you would be doing God's work in restoring or preserving the planet, mm-hmm. and you'd be doing work that's to the uh, benefit of the most affected people in the world. And one of the things that I and many other people worry about is that given climate change, there are already massive migrations from the south to the north. And those are very uncomfortable for the people in both places. The people who have to do the migration, which is frequently very dangerous and expensive. Uh, The people who are um, still trapped in the old place because they don't have enough resources. And the people whose uh, areas are being affected by the new people who are coming. And we've seen this Um, in debates in the United States where people are migrating from the South and not completely because of, uh, you know, conflict. And certainly people who are migrating from various warmer regions into uh, Europe. So I I think that there's uh, very little conflict between people who are worried about it, what you phrase as environmental justice, and people who just sort of say, this is a general disaster for the planet. Thinking about those uh, poor countries that you're mentioning, something else that's striking about them is that in contrast with the industrialized world, essentially by definition, um, there's a larger share of their gross domestic product comes from agriculture than from the industrialized world. And climate and agriculture is the most climate sensitive sector of virtually any economy. So that's another reason why they particularly benefit from uh, constructive climate policies. And the other notion is that whatever they want to produce, they don't have um, access to things like, you know, air conditioning, right. which would make it feasible for them to engage in industrial uh, production. I mean, Rob, I think you may even be old enough to uh, remember when industry started to move south in the United States. Yes, of course. From the New England region. And a large part yeah. of that was the uh, proliferation of air-conditioned factories. Mm -hmm. So you could make, you know, uh, textiles in South Carolina. Um, We no longer make very many textiles in South Carolina, but we make lots of other things in South Carolina Mm -hmm. and Texas and Arizona, um, all because we can make the climate 
sort of acceptable even when it's 95 degrees outside. You know, a couple of times you've mentioned after I guess I, I did first your your beautiful grandchildren. And um, I want to ask you about youth as a last question for us to talk about. And that is, there have been these youth movements of climate activism, chiefly, but not exclusively in the United States and Europe, obviously, Greta Thunberg is most associated with those, but it's much broader than her. Harvard College students are much more activist on climate change than they were 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Um, I'm interested to know what's your reaction to these youth movements of climate activism? First place, I think it's just youth tend to be activists. Mm -hmm. This is a good subject to be activist about. But I also think that they're looking at the world that they're going to be inheriting and seeing that it's going to be a much less pleasant place than the one that they uh, grew up with. Um, There are some aspects of this youth activism, which I'm not enthusiastic about. Uh, This tends to go along with, you know, other political ideas that have nothing to do with preserving the environment. Um, I think that this is independent, for example, uh, things like any wars in the Middle East or wars in the Ukraine or um, whether, um, you know, how we should uh, think about issues of diversity. Um, I think, you know, uh, you shouldn't sort of say, oh, I'll pick up this uh, cudgel. And then there are many other cudgels that some of the same people are picking up. Mm -hmm. And I would prefer to have a pure um, activism uh, about the uh, climate. And by the way, I should mention that both of my grandchildren, who are 15 and 17 years old, are um, very staunchly in favor of doing something about climate change. And uh, one of them, as I remember a few years ago, uh, got Rob Stevens to come to her school to speak about this. Yes, that's right. When I was, uh, I think, in my first year or at the most second year of being an assistant professor, and I dared not say no to uh, Professor Zeckhauser, and it was Bryn, I believe, to her right. school. Yep, yep. So, um, uh, by the way, that that was my uh, daughter. What year was your, that, Rob? Your, your assistant professor. I, I came. I joined the faculty July nineteen eighty eight. So it was eighty eight or eighty nine. Okay, so that just goes to show that for um, more than uh, forty years, we've been discussing these same issues, trying to influence the younger generation <laughs> to have a greater interest in them. And I want to thank you because. Since you came to the Kennedy School, you have been a uh, Johnny Appleseed of environmental concern, having, you know, uh, starting with dozens and then hundreds and now thousands of people who have uh, followed the environmental efforts of Rob Stevens in making this important for people at Harvard and people in the nation at large and across the world. Well, listen, thank you, Richard. I I really appreciate that. And I also appreciate your having taken time to join me today. Uh, it's really been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much, Rob. It was a pleasure to be with you. My guest today has been Richard Zeckhauser, the Frank Ramsey Professor of Political Economy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Please join me again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens. Thanks for listening. 
Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.